Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday, April 12th. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the Consumer Price Index. That measure of inflation, the CPI, was released earlier today. Big gains, higher than analysts were anticipating. Inflation March to March, the past 12-month period, was up 8.5%. Economists were expecting 8.4%. Notably, the food index was up 8.8%, the largest jump since 1981. Additionally, fuel prices were up big in the month of March. And it's those fuel prices that have President Biden out traveling today. He's on his way to Menlo, Iowa, where he'll be making an announcement a little bit later on this morning. We're going to speak with Brian Jennings, the CEO of ACE, the American Coalition for Ethanol, in just a minute about that. Later on in the program, we're going to hear from Chelsea Good. She's the Vice President of Government and Industry Affairs with the Livestock Marketing Association. A new bill introduced in the House, the A-plus Act, would change who can own livestock processing facilities. Chelsea's going to give us the download on what to expect with that. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Patrick Surfuss. He is the Executive Director of the American Biogas Council. This is an industry that has been expanding rapidly over the past two years. Patrick's going to fill us in on really just how big that expansion has been. And at the end of the show, we're going to check in with Casey Seymour. He's the founder of Moving Iron LLC. They track everything equipment dealers are keeping an eye on in these markets. He's going to give us some insight on what to expect with machinery pricing going forward. Before we get into all of that, though, we do have to talk about this announcement from President Joe Biden coming later today to do that. Brian Jennings, as I mentioned, CEO of ACE, joins us today. Brian, President Biden, what's he going to be announcing today? Well, some some long overdue news that we've been hoping for, Mike, but it's incredibly good news for American consumers uh, that also happens to be beneficial for for farmers and biofuel producers. And that is an emergency waiver tapping uh, existing authority that presidents have used in the past when hurricanes and other natural disasters or national emergencies have disrupted the flow of fuel for American consumers, a national emergency to allow E15 to be sold in every single state in the country uh, over the course of these summer months. And the reason that's so critically important, beyond the fact that it can help reduce uh, prices at the pump, Mike, is that had this not taken place in many parts of the country, in fact, in most of the geographic areas of the country, certainly including rural America, retailers would have likely needed to change the labels on their pumps to say E15 could be used for flexible fuel vehicles only, or some retailers may have made the unfortunate decision to pull E15 from those pumps at, at just the time when families are getting on the road and driving more. Um, and so this is a really important step. And we're grateful the president is recognizing that, hey, farmers and ethanol producers are part of the solution to, uh, to address uh, these rising prices. Absolutely. We've got the solution right here in this country, in the heartland. Brian, we've seen E15 be a political football passed around from the courts to the legislation to the regulators. With an emergency waiver such as this, is there the risk that here over the next two or three months we could see this challenged in court? Or is this codified its law, we can sell E15 all summer? Well, you hit it. The, the refiners do not let any opportunity pass to challenge uh, in court or otherwise try to politically block uh, more ethanol from gaining access to the marketplace. I suspect that the refiners are right now looking at what their options are. I think the window of opportunity would be too short for them. As you know, litigation takes some time, and these are indeed emergency steps the president is taking. In fact, it's my understanding that the president will need to renew this emergency waiver every 20 days. So it requires sort of a monitoring of the national fuel supply situation, a monitoring of national fuel prices, 
I'll remind your listeners, national average gas prices went to their very highest price ever earlier this spring in March, and so that's a big reason why this step is being taken. So I suspect that the refiners are going to try to challenge this in some way, shape, or form, Mike. I also suspect that would be unsuccessful over the course of the summer of 2022. So I'm confident that we're going to be okay for 2022 summer driving season. The issue then becomes longer term. This emergency waiver will not apply to the 2023 driving season, obviously. And so the ethanol industry has to find, along with the president, along with Congress, along with Midwest states who have been really good on this topic, we have to find a more permanent solution whether that's legislation we adopt in Congress that is ironclad or a new sort of rulemaking that comes out of EPA. Um, so that's, you know, we'll celebrate today for a very short period of time, but that's the longer term uh, goal that we have in mind, a permanent solution for E15 year round. Well, and with the president's focus turning back towards biofuels, turning back towards that energy security argument that I think renewable biofuel producers can make, Brian, are you optimistic that we might be able to get some of that legislation or perhaps a regulatory fix through now that we've got the ear of the administration? Well, I will just pause and say, isn't it nice that finally we have the administration uttering the words ethanol again? Um, isn't it nice that we finally have the administration looking toward these homegrown solutions that are indeed saving people money at the pump and genuinely helping make us more energy secure given the geopolitical turmoil going on in the world? To your question, I do think there has been strong bipartisan momentum that has been growing in Congress for legislation, which would make E15 year-round permanent. Hopefully, we can continue to build upon that, given this. And I think the next step with the administration, the door we need to crack open further with the administration, Mike, is that not only is ethanol a meaningful way to help save families money at the pump, ethanol's trading at a significant discount to gasoline, but it's also one of the most immediate and meaningful ways we can tackle reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And if you look very carefully at the president's announcement, he doesn't quite go that far. He talks a lot about energy security and energy independence with ethanol. He talks a lot about saving money at the pump with ethanol. We all know that climate change and tackling climate is a big deal to this president and, and a number of folks in Congress. Ethanol is a very significant way to reduce greenhouse gases and address climate change. And that's where we need to take the administration in the next steps beyond this. So, Brian, in order to help tell that story in Washington, D.C., of course, it helps to have voices from the heartland. If we've got any listeners right now who are passionate about biofuels and they want to keep up to date on what ACE is working on, where can they go for more information? They can always go to our website, which is ethanol.org, Mike. We've got an action center where they can thank members of Congress for pushing this issue with the president. They can reach out to EPA as well. Fantastic, folks. Ethanol.org. Check that out. Our thanks to Brian Jennings, the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, it's good news today, isn't it? Very good news. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. When we return, we'll talk with Chelsea Good, Vice President of Government Relations at the Livestock Marketing Association, about the recently introduced A-plus Act. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. University trials and grower use proves that adding tough 5EC to the post-tank mix significantly improves the control of resistant weeds such as palmer amaranth, water hemp, and kochia. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide that synergizes with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. 
Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. We have been speaking for the past year here on AOA. Mike Adams covered this topic, and we've been talking about it since I started. The focus of legislators and regulators in Washington, D.C. on the beef and cattle markets. That spotlight has continued here over this past week. Recently, there was a bill announced. This is a bipartisan bill, and it has the very cute name, the A-plus Act, and that stands for the Amplifying Processing of Live stock in the United States Act. That's where you get that A+. My goodness, what could Congress do if they weren't spending so much time thinking of cute names for these bills? But this is a bill that would allow some changes of ownership in the cattle processing space. It's a big topic. To help us make sense of it, we're joined today by Chelsea Good. She's the Vice President of Government and Industry Affairs at the Livestock Marketing Association. And Chelsea, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about this A-plus act. This is something I know that LMA has been active on. What was it about this bill that is driving your members to be supportive? So, you know, I think everybody agrees. Administration, the Congress, the livestock industry, we need more proper competition and additional shackle space in the beef industry. However, there's a regulatory barrier that is really outdated that keeps your local livestock auctions from being able to own or invest in even local or regional packing. And so what we like about this bill is it removes that regulatory barrier and it would allow your local livestock auction market owners to own or invest in the smaller regional meat packing entities. Interesting. Now, Chelsea, I know you're an attorney. As you look back in history, why was this law, why was this break ever established in law? Why couldn't these uh, livestock facilities own processing plants? It really dates back to the terminal stockyards that we had at the turn of the century. The Packers and Stockyards Act is more than 100 years old. And so a lot of these laws and rules were written for a very different business model. You had producers sending cattle on rail cars to a terminal stockyard like we had in Kansas City or Chicago. And um, the marketing entity at that time was just an individual. So it kind of makes sense that you wouldn't want that individual to be affiliated with a packer that was co-located there at that terminal stockyard 
particularly if the producers weren't necessarily there to see the transaction take place. That is very different than what we see in the countryside today with our local and regional livestock auction markets that have that auction component that really adds the transparency and competition, a lot of sunshine in that environment, and yet our local livestock auctions today are still tied to a lot of these rules that are written for the terminal stockyards of days gone by. Interesting. So it's really the the whole industry has changed. And now, of course, with online sales, anyone can watch an auction, Chelsea. It's really neat to see the modernization in the livestock marketing space. As you think about this bill and its potential in Congress, I'm sure you've been talking to decision makers in D.C. What have you heard? Does it sound like this might have a chance as a standalone piece of legislation or will it likely be worked into something larger? You know, it, it's a good bipartisan piece of legislation, so we've got um, some momentum and some excite, excitement. We have seen some standalone pieces of legislation move um, on the House side in particular this year uh, in, in the livestock space. Cattle contract library would be an example of that, um, although we also see um, a lot of uh, the, the movement that we see ultimately, um, and I'll use cattle contract library as an example again, um, that ended up becoming a pilot that passed in the appropriations process. Um, just the way that Congress functions today, a, a lot of what they end up doing is vetting out an idea as a standalone bill, and once they determine that it, it's a good idea, that um, it, it's fully baked, if you will, it becomes part of a bigger package. It, from an LMA perspective, we're really open-minded to either of those paths forward. Okay, glad to hear there is momentum and excitement. Chelsea, as you think about your membership there, the the regional and local sale barns that market so much cattle across the country, what type of processing facility are they interested in starting? Are most of them looking at, at just doing local processing? Have you heard many plans for how this could be put into practice if this were to pass? We've had quite a few lo local livestock auctions call in and have conversations with us, and, and they're really interested in a couple of different models. One is kind of that pretty local, um, you know, locker plant is what I would call it, that they are interested in either buying a locker plant in their local community or, um, you know, building one or growing the capacity of one. So that that's one area of interest. We've also talked to auction owners, though, that are interested in being part of an investment group for more of a regional scale facility. They wouldn't necessarily be involved in the day-to-day -day operations of a facility like that, but because they are in our industry and they see the need for another packer buyer on the seats and more competition, they want to invest in that space. So those are kind of two of the main models that we've talked to people that they have interest in. There's actually even um, a, a third, and, and that is um, the, the marketing of meat locally, even if you aren't processing those animals, the definition of packer is so broad under the Packers and Stockyards Act, even that sort of activity is prohibited. So we're aware of markets that have actually had to split up family businesses in order to have one of the family members own the local livestock auction and then somebody else in the family split apart to have a you know, local beef program even though they were getting those animals custom harvested and didn't even own the packing facility. So that's just one more example of a way that we've seen some of our marketing families trying to diversify and being hampered by the current regulation on the books. All right. Well, hopefully some streamlining of those regulations will be coming through soon. Chelsea, as we think about LMA and the role you guys play in negotiating cash cattle trade around the country, obviously that has been a focus in D.C. for the past two years. What other pieces of legislation or regulation are you watching there at LMA? Yeah, we're certainly uh, watching all of the different conversations in this space that uh, we um, have seen that there's going to be yet another Senate Ag Committee hearing and House Ag Committee hearing later this month. I think for, from an LMA perspective, we are um, you know, paying attention to the different variations of those bills, but also have been paying attention to just livestock mandatory reporting in general. That's something that uh, we get really good information out of LMR, but it has to be authorized, and it continually is getting authorized on kind of a short-term basis. We would really like to see that authorized on more of a long-term basis. It, it currently will run through the end of September, but what we've tried to do in the past is get five-year reauthorizations, and that way people have a degree of certainty that that quality information that they receive from livestock uh, mandatory reporting 
that that will continue to occur. So that's certainly something we are watching as well. And Chelsea, I mean, getting a five-year reauth would be huge for that LMR. Do you think that could happen here, given that it's an election year and we've still got some uh, big pieces of legislation yet to slide through? Very good question. Um, I, I think it's possible, and that needs to continue to be the focus. Um, but it will be a challenge, and it'll be an uphill battle, and it'll take the industry working together to, if there are any tweaks, that they we come unified with exactly what those look like in order to get that long-term certainty. That makes sense. Chelsea, I want to ask before we let you go here about broadly the health for sale barns and livestock markets across the country. It has been a volatile two years. Staffing and labor, I'm sure, are a challenge. Are they ready here to uh, to to keep doing the important business of selling cattle and hogs uh, negotiate a trade? Absolutely. Um, our, our membership is committed to continue to providing that local and regional marketplace that provides you know, true price discovery and liquidity liquidity for producers in the countryside, a place that you can go and know that you're going to have competition and get paid the best price for your animals those that day and also have a, a guaranteed good check for those animals that day. And you know, labor is certainly a challenge for um, everybody across the United States and livestock auctions are um, certainly included in that, but we've seen our members be creative and continuing to find ways to make sure that they're there to continue serving their local and rural communities. That is good to hear. Number of livestock markets. Chelsea, are we seeing consolidation in the space? Are there mergers happening given that it's been kind of a challenge for two years for a lot of these operators? We haven't seen a significant change in the total number of livestock auctions. We have seen um, some entities where um, a family or a business that used to have one livestock auction might own a couple livestock auctions. So we've seen some ownership consolidation, but in terms of the number of facilities, we have not seen a significant change there. Okay, Chelsea, before we let you go, how can folks keep up to date with the work that's happening there at the Livestock Marketing Association? I'd recommend people follow along on our social media and our website, which is lmaweb.com. And really appreciate um, your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on this A-plus act currently in the House, folks. We've been talking to Chelsea Good, the Vice President of Government and Industry Affairs at the Livestock Marketing Association. And stay with us. When we return, Patrick Surfass, the Executive Director of the American Biogas Council, will join me and we'll look at how that industry has expanded recently. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Hardworking families are feeling pain at the gas pump. Fortunately, American-made ethanol provides some relief. Today, gas with 15% ethanol, called E15, is the lowest price fuel available. But E15 will disappear on June 1st unless Washington acts now. Call your lawmakers today and call the White House at 202-456-1111. Tell them we need E15 this summer. We can't afford another price hike at the pump. Brought to you by the Renewable Fuels Association. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, grain and oilseed prices are up sharply here so far on this Tuesday as President Biden is set to announce an emergency waiver to allow the sale of E15 gasoline this summer, although that will likely have very little impact on ethanol use until or unless the move is made permanent. Meanwhile, the market remains skeptical of Ukrainian exports, with traders starting to take note of the cool, wet spring seen across central and eastern areas of the Midwest that is slowing field work, while drought conditions continue to rage in the plains. Snowfall totals one to two feet going to provide some drought relief in parts of North Dakota, but the drought continues further south. Winter wheat condition ratings firmed slightly, but remain the second lowest on record for the date. 
Good to excellent ratings rose by two points in the wheat state of Kansas to 34%, but the percent rated poor to very poor also rose by two percentage points to 32%. As for China, there are early indicators that COVID numbers may be peaking, raising hopes that demand may soon be recovering in the world's largest importer of commodities. Also, gasoline prices rose 25% on the month in March, as most consumers know, and it was up 48% year on year. Numbers on the board right now, May quarter up 12, 776 and a half. Soybeans for May up 24 and a half, 1679 at three quarters. May bean meal up 610 a ton, 465.20. May bean oil up 160 points, 75.90. May Chicago wheat up 21, 1102 at a quarter. May Kansas City wheat up 18 and a half, 1160. May spring wheat up 10, 1152. April live cattle up 65, 139.17. Feeder cattle for April up 57 now, 157.22. April hogs up 90, 99.32. Crude oil on the rise up 513 a barrel, 99.42. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thank you for tuning in to AOA today. You know, we discussed here in segment one with Brian Jennings the trip that President Biden is making to Menlo, Iowa to announce E15 sales year round. That has got renewable energy on my mind. And it got me thinking about some of the other aspects of the energy industry that are looking at finding ways to be renewable. One industry that has done that is biogas the idea of turning waste products whether it's food waste or manure into energy to supply the grid that industry has seen massive growth in recent years to help bring us up to speed today we're joined by patrick surfass he's the executive director of the american biogas council and patrick thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today thanks for having me mike Let's talk first about definitions. Patrick, what is a biogas, technically speaking? So biogas is the gas that is produced when you put a bunch of organic waste in a tank and you starve it of oxygen. Uh, it's primarily methane. There's uh, about 40% CO2 in it. So basically it's methane and CO2. And it gets produced when you take your manure, maybe some organic waste, even wastewater sludge, you put it in a tank and then you create this like Goldilocks scenario where it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's mixed enough, not too little. And when you do that, the microbes are really happy. They eat up the organic waste that's in there and they burp out the methane. And that methane is the biogas and can be used as renewable energy. And my understanding is biogas effectively is a, a drop-in replacement for natural gas. Brian, is am I understanding it correctly? Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, it's also drop in for electricity too. So when you take out, if you look at if you look at conventional natural gas, it's basically 100% methane, like 98, 99% methane. And when you take biogas and you take out the carbon dioxide, you're left with just methane. And at that point, it's exactly the same as conventional natural gas, except for it's been renewably produced. So it can drop in right into our natural gas pipelines, into natural gas vehicles. Um, create heat um, for on-farm uses or, or anywhere else. 
but it can also be used to generate electricity um, and uh, and other things as well. So you basically can use it any of the ways that you can use natural gas, which makes it really flexible. It does. It's really flexible. And since there is the potential to produce it anywhere, it's geographic and non-discriminatory. To that end, Patrick, as you think about where this industry has exploded here over the past two or three years, what are some of the geographies where you see biogas being taken up most readily? Well, you know, it's actually happening just about everywhere in the country. And the reason for that is because that's where the organic waste is. So when you look at the three major kinds of waste that you normally get uh, digested in a biogas system. You've got ag-based, farm-based waste that's mostly manure. Uh, you've got food waste, and you've got wastewater sludge. And the wastewater sludge and the food waste is proportional to where our population centers are, because the more people you have, the more food waste you have, the more wastewater you have. So there, there you're going to have a lot of growth in the biogas industry where the population centers are. Uh, but for all the ag-based waste, obviously, that's where the farms are and where the animals are. And so you're going to see growth there in those areas. And that pretty much ends up covering just about the entire country when it when it comes down to it. We are recycling very little of our, of our organic waste all around this country, and that creates an enormous opportunity to build biogas systems. We've got biogas systems in all 50 states right now, uh, but there's about 2,300 of them. But there's the potential to build 15,000 more systems. And if you just look at the on-farm opportunities, on-farm, we could probably build at least another 8,000 biogas systems on uh, 8,000 farms uh, that are out there. So there's a huge opportunity to produce renewable energy, uh, make healthier soil and soil products. And from the farm-based scenario, it's a, it's a double benefit because you've got the opportunity to produce additional revenue and to decrease some costs. Brian, I have seen more headlines about biogas here really since COVID started, call it 2020, 2019, something like that. Has the technology finally matured to be able to take this mainstream, or is it more of a public acceptance of biogas, and now we're seeing the investment push into the space? Yeah, it's more the latter. It's more, more public acceptance coupled with uh, some changes in policy or some improvements in policy. And so what you saw, what you've seen over the last couple of years is uh, a federal policy that we have called the Renewable Fuel Standard, which is designed to produce more renewable fuel for transportation. And then there's a California-based program, the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, that is designed to reduce the carbon intensity of transportation fuels, so two transportation-related programs. And when you can use both of those programs together, you can not only sell your biogas, but you can sell the credits that get generated from those two programs. And those credits are worth money. So that's where the additional revenue can come from, from those two programs. And on farms in particular, you have a really good opportunity because you're not only using biogas to displace fossil fuels in transportation, like displacing gasoline and diesel for trucking and buses and things like that, but you're also reducing emissions on the farm because a lot of farms have store the manure and open manure, manure lagoons. And those are actually producing biogas just by the nature of it all being in one big pond. Well, if you can digest all that manure in a biogas system and capture all that methane, not only are you capturing carbon emissions, but you're capturing carbon emissions that are 30 times, at least sometimes 80 times more harmful than carbon dioxide. And according to these policies, then you can generate even more credits from reducing methane than you could from just reducing carbon dioxide. And the more credits you can generate, the more revenue you can generate. So these farm-based um, systems, if you have an open manure lagoon uh, and you're more than, you know, let's say uh, a thousand head dairy or a 5,000 head swine farm, uh, then you're able to probably reduce your carbon intensity so much that you can generate a lot of credits and that means a lot of additional revenue on your farm by building a biogas system. So I've heard conversations of biogas systems and digester installations perk up at farm meetings here again over that past two or three years. And Patrick, one of the concerns I hear from producers is let's say I've got a feedlot and I'm in Nebraska and I have the potential to build a digester. What sort of infrastructure will I need next to move my biogas? Is it moved by trucks or pipes? Or how does the infrastructure set up for this energy system really work across the country? 
Well, first you should talk with the developer and make sure the way that your farm is set up is conducive to a biogas system. For example, if the manure from your animals is spread all around fields around your farm, it's going to be very hard to collect. And if you did collect it, it might be really contaminated with, you know, dirt and sand and other things like that. That may not be a good recipe for a biogas system. But if your animals are producing large amounts of manure in one place, uh, that is easily collectible and maybe where that kind of uh, contamination from sand, which is just abrasive and it breaks down equipment faster, um, where the manure can be collected in a more concentrated fashion, then it might be more conducive. So that's the, that's usually the best thing to do is to start talking to a project developer about how your farm is set up and whether it's conducive to a biogas system to begin with. And uh, if not, are you interested in making some changes to make it more conducive, make your farm more conducive? Um, but in terms of the equipment, basically what you're doing is you're building a tank someplace, maybe it's in the ground or maybe it's above ground, and you're creating some mixing. And the technology is all, um, it's not rocket science, it's all pretty basic. Um, we say that, you know, you need, to, you need to know how to operate the biogas system well, but uh, it doesn't take an advanced degree to do that. You just have a big tank with some mixers and a gas collection system. That's, those are the basics of it. And then depending upon your particular farm and your particular situation, you may have some pre-processing or some post-processing of the gas, depending upon what kind of products you're going to make. You have a gas, a liquid, and a solid coming from your biogas system. And how are you going to use those? Are you going to use them on your farm? Are you going to export them and sell them off your farm? Um, and in what form? Those are all choices uh, to make as you start to figure out what kind of biogas system makes the most sense for you. A lot of flexibility in these setups and getting them constructed. Brian, or excuse me, Patrick, I want to ask you about legislation. Uh, is there currently anything pending that could impact the uh, the continued growth of the biogas industry? Yeah, there's always there's always policy um, opportunities out there for us. So the two policies that I mentioned already are in place, and those are those are working well. Um, the House passed uh, late last year the Build Back Better. Um, bill, which had a number of tax credits in it that would really help to reduce the capital cost of, of different kinds of biogas systems. Um, that whole package is not going to pass, we don't think, in this Congress, but the renewable energy portion of it, which is those biogas-related tax credits, in addition to other renewable energy tax credits, um, does have a lot of interest, does have a lot of support in Congress. And the hope right now is that uh, that package, that piece of the Build Back Better um, may be moved ahead. If that happens, then that will be a huge thing for, for everyone to take advantage of. And then there's also some regulations that EPA is expecting to push this summer that will uh, change uh, how attractive it is to add food waste to digesters and make sure you're not just digesting manure or wastewater, but food waste as well. So bunches of opportunities, and then, of course, statewide opportunities all, all over the place. Right. Yeah. Each state, of course, has their own initiatives and encouragements for folks to get into the biogas game. Patrick, if listeners want to get some more information, maybe they want to dig into the biogas industry, where can they go? Well, I'd send them to AmericanBiogasCouncil.org. And I'd also say you should come out to Las Vegas uh, next month, right before Memorial Day weekend. We have our big biogas conference. It's called Biogas Americas in Las Vegas. We hope to see you there. Always a good reason to go to Vegas, the Biogas Americas Conference next month. We've been talking to Patrick Surfass, the Executive Director of the American Biogas Council. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk used machinery with Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex premium diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes 
just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. University trials and grower use proves that adding tough 5EC to the post-tank mix significantly improves the control of resistant weeds such as Palmer amaranth, water hemp, and kochia. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide that synergizes with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Kent Beadle, the Director of Producer Brokerage with CHS Hedging, about the latest USDA reports. Kent, the USDA recently released its Prospective Plantings Report. What were the findings on that? Well, uh, the USDA survey surprised the trade in a fairly dramatic fashion uh, with a number of uh, additional bean acres. Uh, probably about 3 million bean acres more than the average trade estimate, which was a substantial number. And of course, those had to come from someplace. And so we had about two and a half million less corn acres. So that has some implications. First of all, what that told us was that uh, high fertilizer prices got the American farmer wanting to plant more soybeans. Uh, we think that there was another factor behind that, and that was all of the talk and uh, the media around renewable diesel and the impact that that was going to have on soybean prices over the long pull. And so for you know those two reasons, uh, we had a fairly sizable shift. Kent, it is so hard to plan in a volatile market like the one we're living in. Do you have any risk management planning tips for growers to consider as they gear up for planting season? This is the time of the year when growers should have been taking a look at expenses and break-evens. And what we do at, at CHS Hedging and Agsurian is actually try to plan for the gross dollars per acre required to make a return on assets and equity. And after that math is done, we then have to look at these prices and say, can we achieve those objectives? And what growers should be doing is talking with their advisors and putting together a marketing plan that's going to allow them to achieve those objectives. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. If any of you have made a trip to an implement dealer or perhaps to a farm sale or just 
pulled up used equipment listings on Craigslist, you've no doubt noticed that prices are high. It was announced uh, this morning the Association of Ag Equipment, excuse me, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers announced their tractor sales for the month of March and high horsepower, that 100 horsepower plus tractor selling more in March of 2022 than in 2021. And that is filtering all the way down into the used market to help us make a little bit more sense of everything that's going on. Joining me today is Casey Seymour, founder of Moving Iron LLC. Casey, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Good to talk to you again. For listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the Moving Iron name, Casey, tell us what it is you do. I have a podcast called Moving Iron Podcast, and I uh, basically I talk about the, the economic drivers of the farm equipment business. So I take a look at the trend lines that are being developed across the across the platform and try to figure out which way things are headed and, and try to make some some best guess, I guess, when you start looking at uh, at used equipment. Well, Casey, things from the outside look to be headed higher. Is that uh, what your trends are showing as well? Yeah, a lot of it's driven by just just uh, availability issues right now. Um, used equipment is being hung up, uh, getting to the dealerships because of new equipment deliveries and those kind of things. So there's a there's a premium out there based around the stuff that you see that's available right now, and uh, and and you just, you just, as you talked about earlier auction values and what you see listed out there uh, reflect that. Casey, you recently published a blog post talking about lines of delineation between the different buying segments of folks who go after farm machinery. Can you talk a little bit about the different buckets of buyers you see in the ag equipment world? Yeah, I mean, it used to be when I first started doing this about about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, it wasn't uncommon to have a a one-off buyer jump in and buy a new piece of equipment and have a some used pieces laying around and then they would kind of filter those pieces around and, and buy either strictly used tractors or in, in new combines and some kind of combination. Right now you don't, you don't really see that so much. And I think a lot of that's just being driven by the, the, the price of equipment that we see out there. Um, you have a traditional new buyer, you have a, a buyer that likes to buy that, that one or two year old piece. And then you have a buyer that likes to buy a, a called the high depreciation um, buyer. And they're the ones that they're probably the third buyer. They've got, they're buying that tractor with you know 1500 hours on it something like that where a, a big chunk of that expensive depreciation has been knocked off um, they're buying something like that and then you have another buyer that's more the uh, the high hour buyer and they're they're just looking for something that that fits their budget and and typically that's a higher hour machine you know 5000 plus hour uh, tractor of sorts so those lines that you start to see where there used to be some people jumping back and forth into those buckets they're starting to be pretty solidified where um, what they can afford for their operation um, is, is really being just, you know, segmented into those different brackets. Casey, if buyers are being segmented or they're, they're segmenting themselves into different ba- brackets, mm-hmm. are they putting additional premiums on now that all the high hour buyers are competing at the same sale or at the same dealership for that one piece of high hour equipment? Yeah, I think what's driving a lot of this uh, uh, buying structure that you see right now is from 2012 to about 2020 not a lot of of fleets got updated and you're starting to see where those higher hour machines are are starting to be in people's wheelhouses that necessarily don't like to have that higher hour piece of equipment so they're trying to update their machine and and, and get that you know go from a 3000 hour machine down to a, a 1000 or 1500 hour machine or something like that and they're trying they're, they're finding those were available and that's where that that premiums coming into play. That makes sense, Casey. I wanted to ask you, you talked to, to dealerships and machinery dealerships all across the country. And with the the premiums we're seeing at auction, what's inventory look like for dealers across the country? Are, are most of them sitting pretty well? Inventory's tight. You know, you look at a lot of the stuff that's listed on the internet and and there's plenty of inventory out there to be had, but it's when you can get it, and that's the that's the key structure right now. Um, a lot of machinery is coming in, you know, post planting season, uh, June, July timeframe, and then there's another batch that'll be coming in, uh, like the last quarter of the year. So it's pretty segmented right now as far as when that stuff's going to hit. Um, very important thing when you're talking with your dealer, um, make sure you understand when that machine's coming in because you could have said yes to a machine that may not be available for six months. And so uh, just keep that in mind when you're looking at the stuff on the internet. Yes, yes, that's a great point, Casey. And I also wanted to get your thoughts here on when 
when we could see the first signs of, of a price breakdown, are you, do you think we're getting near the peak of used equipment values right here? You know, I, I thought that we'd see something towards the end of 23 going into 24. And with the Ukraine-Russia situation, I think that's kind of moved that back a year um, just because of what we're going to see um, with, with crop prices and of, uh, how that whole thing plays out. So to me, I, I'm, I'm paying attention to the middle part of 24 going into 25 as a, uh, as a correction point. And the correction point is probably a, a harsh word to use there, but really just you're kind of clearing off that premium because I think by then you'll have full production of factories and, and the use equipment will be, will be filling back up on the lots. The one thing we see right now, especially when it comes to used equipment, is that you know, the cupboard's bare. So we have a, at least one or two selling cycles to sell into that before we actually have excess used equipment that you would say, you know, I don't have a particular buyer in mind for this, for this piece of equipment right now. Um, similar to what we saw in maybe 17, 18, 19 timeframe. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. As you think, Casey, longer term about the coverage that you're doing and the focus you're having on the market, how can folks keep up to date with the conversations you're having with people here in the, uh, the machinery space? Well, just check out Moving Iron Podcast. Anywhere you can find a podcast, uh, it's on there. You can find it any place you want to. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at movingironllc.com. I also post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn as well. Um, so, so check that out. I've got a YouTube channel as well called Moving Iron YouTube channel. Check that out, folks. If you're looking for data on the machinery market, Casey has it. Casey Seymour, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it, Mike. And folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll be talking with Arlen Suderman about the markets. And we're also going to talk about using satellite imagery to detect crops and where crop problems might be developing. Tune in on Wednesday to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, oh, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.